Hello and welcome to Off Track. I'm your host, Dave Neal, and this week I'm delighted to say joining me is the 1998 even British Grand Prix winner and the dawn of pit lane reporter, Kiwi Simon Crafer. Simon, welcome to Off Track. Thank you. Uh, good to be here again. It's a pleasure. It's been a long time since we've had a chat and uh, a lot of things have changed in that time. Um, when we spoke previously, um, you were in the, the, the throes of Moto Voodoo and your track day reporting and the, the track day teaching and bringing the guys on. And that we'll touch on that in the conversation as we go along. Um, but I can't remember. Then, had, I started, had I started the pit lane reporting when we last spoke? No. Okay, gotcha. No, no, it was it was it's a lot longer than we think. I think we're yeah. maybe looking back six years now. <laughs> Time's flown by. I think you started the pit lane report in 2018. That's right. So it was a couple of years before that. So you you were still doing the the track day instruction and the moto voodoo was taking off. So how things have changed in that time for you, which was why I was keen to get you on to off track, so we can talk through the the moto gp gig but if if you'd be so kind if you for the listeners that aren't aware of your background would you do me a little potted resume of your career up to press please oh oh as in from how just the main points or from yeah let's go with the main points yeah let's go the main points uh okay so i when i finally got my shit together in new zealand and uh, got serious. I managed to win the championship 250s and then um, uh, this 250 production, then Formula One class back then. Uh, then that helped me get out. I got some rides in Japan, which was a real eye-opener. It was in the deep end, you know, against – I got to ride the eight-hour first trip out of New Zealand, which was – you know, I saw guys like Gardner making fools of me, you know, and, and Schwantz and you know what I'm saying, an amazing experience, mind-blowing. Then uh, that completely gave me the bug for getting out of New Zealand and, you know, into that. So I, I, I then went to Malaysia. They were really good to me, raced there for a year and a half. I won the local championship there, which was made up of obviously locals and Brits, uh, yeah, a few Irish lads, uh, Aussies um, and some Kiwis. And uh, that was great. Taught me how to ride a superbike, and um, then moved to the UK. Um, got a ride um, with Honda UK, which sounds like a big leap, but I just went there for two rides in '91 and managed to impress enough to get a ride with Neil Duxworth. Plus, I was cheap. Neil liked cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Duxworth, not, not a man to part with his money very easily. I love Neil. That's why I don't mind teasing him with a smile. Exactly like, right. He's awesome. I rode for him three times, actually. Um, 92, 95, 2002. And he was awesome to me the whole time. Um, really good guy. So, um, yeah, British. Then when I got there, uh, absolutely no offence meant at all to British Championship because it's, it's awesome as far as national championship goes. But that year I got to do that. Part of my deal was not push Neil for money was three world superbike rounds. Cause that's what I was aiming at. Sure. And I got to do those three rounds and uh, Neil to save money for one of them loaned me to, to Rumi Honda and, uh, and Zeltvig and it, which is a one ring. Now it yeah. was a lot better before twice the size <laughs> dangerous though. Um, a little bit like us and it's kind of shrunk in size. Yeah, yep, um, chopped in half. So uh, and that went really well, meaning I think qualified seventh and got two top tens. So um, at the end of 92, 
I didn't want to stay in national championship anymore because I'd seen, once you see those factory bikes warming up, if anyone's seen them in the flesh, you don't want to be anywhere else, you know, because it's just, I don't know about you, but it makes my skin, you know, the goosebumps, just especially back then, the factory jukes were so impressive. I just wanted to be there. So uh, I, I left uh, British Championship, but without a ride. I just went, I have to do. That's a brave um, move, Simon. Um, yeah, it's actually the move that I, I'm probably most proud of, of my whole career. Um, because, yeah, a couple of things like that. It proves that you've got to chase your dream, not the money, you know, because the money was three times as much to stay. And I've never been paid properly to ride a bike before. And to walk away from that when I had nothing else, just because I knew I won a world championship, um, I'm proud that I was that brave at, at, uh, you know, all focused, put it that way. And um, I had nothing till April, I think it was. I got a call uh, from the lowest budget team in 500 Grand Prix because their rider got refused entry, something like that. I think the story went. And they said, um, uh, no money, but you sleep in the you can sleep in the truck and ride a 500 Grand Prix. And I went, yes, at least <laughs> it was World Championship. <laughs> and had a, had a ball. It was like, obviously, big learning curve, trying to learn a 500 two-stroke, but also um, the tracks, you know, the impressive circuits that, um, yeah, mind-blowing. You know, you know what I'm saying. Hockenheim, uh, Jerez, uh, you know what I'm saying. Um, Assen, first time there, I loved. And Assen result was really good. Got ninth, and that got me a, a better job, you know, with Tech 3. Um, John Kaczynski had uh, really made the team angry by <laughs> blowing the bike up, Suzuki 250, on the one day. John Kaczynski. Wow, well, I'm a big fan of him as a rider, and he was always nice to me. So, yeah. Um, and had some great races with him later on. So uh, I'm, uh, he, he's, he was always a bit of a hero because of how good he was, you know, and how good he looked on the bike, what he could do. So when, when he um, got the sack and um, moved to the Kajiva uh, and won on it, amazing yeah. guy. Well, Hervé Poncherel was sitting there going, oh, no, who are we going to put on it? Well, when the 500 race was on and um, this – Kiwi, he didn't know, <laughs> got ninth on a private bike. So he wandered down and said, do you want a job? And I was like, it was, it, I remember him saying something like two and a half grand a race and, a, and that camper over there that we hired for John to get changed in, it's yours and we'll put the diesel in it. And I was <laughs> like, I could ring my girlfriend, who's my wife now, and say, come on, we've got a home. Let's let's do it. So that was the big, you know. Uh, by mid ninety three, I had exactly what I wanted. Um, okay, not quite exactly because I'm too big for a two fifty and had there is no that. experience, no real experience on a. I'd ridden Alan Carter's <clears throat> when he was hurt in the British Championship the year before three times. You know, I think I crashed it twice, um, but I was just too big for the two fifty. But I learnt all the important, or well, a lot of the important things that you learn from a factory team. You know, from Tech Three, Kikulon. Uh, Hervé, they were so good to me and I learned so much. It was worth it for that. Then uh, end of that year, I got a call. Honda had made a new RC45, a new superbike, and Rumi wanted to go racing. They, I must have impressed enough the year before when I rode for them. They offered me the job, and that's exactly what I wanted, which was full-time world championship, you know, on a 
yeah, it was a private team, but full-time world championship. So finally made it to where I wanted. Into that big time on the, on the, uh, on the production bikes. But yeah. So I rode two years world two bikes then. Um, oh, sorry. On, on the Honda. Yeah. For, that was for Rumi. But the second year um, was also with Neil Tuxworth because um, they kind of joined forces when Poland didn't turn up uh, beginning of the 95. And uh, so Rumi kind of loaned me to um, Castro Honda. And so we got to work with Neil again, as well as Rumi. It was still in Rumi colours. But anyway, th- that was a great year. Got my first podiums in World Superbikes and then uh, did well enough to get the factory Kawasaki alongside Anthony Gobert. Um which were, there's lots of stories there. Um, but that first year was pretty, really tough because it was a brand new bike for Kawasaki. And both Anthony, Anthony and I literally crashed, you know, crashed our brains out trying to make the thing competitive speed-wise. It handled good, but it wasn't fast enough, you know. And Anthony did a better job than me at making it look good. Second year, Anthony wasn't there, it was... Yanagawa came in Yanagawa. as my teammate. And Kawasaki had the winter to work on that engine, and they turned up, and they the, now the engine was competitive. The bike was great, handled, and went fast, and I had my best year with two bikes, which got me a job um, a job offer with Red Bull Yamaha, you know, 500. So, uh, yeah, that was – That was I didn't the big see step. It coming. Yeah, I didn't see it coming, and it was scary because – the people that had made the move before had a tough time, you know, and they, you're talking very impressive riders. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, Troy Corsa, Noriyuki Haga, um, you know, and they had, had a tough time. Um, and so I was like, and I, but after a week of the scratching my head and thinking about it, I realised that... Um, you know, I remember being at the gym. I've told the story before. I remember being at the gym, looking up on the wall, and there's a picture of Nor- Norik Abe. And I thought, he was sixth in um, 500 Grand Prix. Everyone knows who Norik is. I was sixth in World Superbike, and no one knows who I am. <laughs> so shows which is the important class. And uh, I want to know if I can ride one of those things, you know. That was I, I said to myself, I don't want to be 40 and go, I wonder if I could have ridden a 500, you know? So I rang him up and said, let's, Peter Clifford, and I said, let's do it. And from there, that, that season really was a, a defining year for, for your career at that point. You'd done so well in World Superbikes with the podiums and the, the almost a development riding for the Honda and jumping on new bikes each time, the RC45 and then uh, the ZX7, to then go into... The 500 CCGPs, which I remember crystal clear. I'm of, of that age group that still remembers uh, the, the two-stroke 500s. On your first um, test on the Red Bull Yamaha, just explain to me your feelings and how when, when you first threw your leg over it and you first pull out a pit lane, because this kind of thing I really find interesting of how you felt in that moment and how being present in that moment, if you understand what I mean. I remember it really clearly. Um, it's. I wish this still happened. Um, the first tests every year were at Phillip Island because early, obviously in the year, 
that's the best time of year. It's full on summer, you know, weather's settled there. Um, you're talking probably February, <clears throat> excuse me. And February, Phillip Island is gorgeous, you know. And so we had the weather. We're at one of the most beautiful tracks there is. I'd just ridden there recently, you know, on a superbike finishing the season. Um, and uh, yeah, I got on this thing. And it, first of all, it was so light, you know, like a, you're talking 30, something like 30 kilos lighter than the superbike and much more aggressive and more power, you know. So it had more power, lighter and quite aggressive power. A short, quite short power band, they're only probably, there's only about three grand in there that's good, useful compared to the four strokes, which are a bit wider. Um, but I remember going out and they, they got me to run it in because it was brand new, well, new cylinders anyway, brand new bike, I think. And went out and they said, like, even like the four strokes were the same, two laps of this RPM, you know, it's quite low, two at this, two at this, and then two pins come in and we'll check, and they check for oil or water leaks or anything loose before you go and do a long run, you know. And that two flat out, I came in and I was laughing like one of those um, maniac, you know, manic laughs with my good friend and mechanic Brent Stevens, you know, and uh, he, he was saying, well, I was alive, like, I was just laughing going, it's crazy. Like, because the thing just wanted to wheelie everywhere. And um, especially if you're big, you know, I'm quite big as a rider and heavier. And so you have to really get that weight low because it just, you couldn't hold it on full without it going everywhere, but magic experience, you know. I read this week that Brent Stevens is back in Australia. He's with um, Troy Corsa's boy, isn't he? For the, the I saw that as well Aussie on social season. media. Yeah. So, That's just Brenty not being able to stand still. He, he wants to do something, you know. Um, <clears throat> I know he's aimed at coming back. You know, there's talk of a team or two more coming to um, Grand Prix, and he's a very experienced guy. So um, I think he's aiming at that uh, ultimately. Do you, do you remind him that you gave him his shot and you made him what he is? <laughs> no, I don't have to do that. <laughs> he tells his story. He tells his story. So, yeah, for the listeners, he Brent um, was, you know, when at 15 years old, I left school because I got offered a mechanic apprenticeship in a bike shop and some sponsorship to ride motocross at the same time because the owner of the shop was the you know New Zealand champion 125 from two years ago, senior. So he wanted to help me get... And uh, so I put my kind of uh, average toolbox on a bench and the guy next to me, I'm 15, he's 18. Um, he's an apprentice as well as Brent Stevens. So we started our apprenticeship together. Um, then he, w- he was together with my sister for like four years. So he all- it was close to becoming my brother-in-law. <laughs> he's, you know, he's a really, really close mate. So yeah, then, so when I uh, was at Rumi and we had a bit of a disaster. We didn't, we were one guy short and uh, meaning when I'd come and do pits, pit stop in the middle of a session for a new tire and row, I, I said to my team, Oscar Rumi, that we are one guy short, you know, the stops taking longer because you don't notice it overnight when all the work gets done anyway, but you do when the pressure's on. And um, they said, we know, but all our, we, we lost that other fella and all the good guys are gone at the moment. And I said, I, I know someone. And just bluffed. We didn't even tell him. Didn't tell him that Brent had never 
worked in racing before, you know, but I knew he's good and he had the right mentality and he slotted straight in. And, uh, How fabulous. And the re- he went on to be one of Valentino Ross's mechanics for many, many years alongside Alex yeah. Briggs and, uh, and Gary and the rest of the guys with JB as well. What a yeah. fantastic story. I didn't realize that. You see, you can only do so much research to find what goes on, but these are the stories that I like the best. Yeah, so Brenty was with us in 95. He came, and so he was 96. Uh, and 90, uh, Kawasaki came with me in 97. And then, uh, yeah, we, we then went different ways. He, he went to save his marriage. He went home and decided not to uh, come back racing, you know, folks. You know what I mean? To, to, sure. to get, get, a, keep his, get his marriage on track. Six months later, he rang me up and said, didn't work, need a job. <laughs> and we'd filled the spot. So uh, another um, Kiwi that I'd kind of come over, I'd used to work for, raced against Mike Webb, um, who's race director now. Uh, he, I, I asked Mike, and he had a spot. We all got talking. And uh, anyway, Brenty ended up working with Mike, who was working for, I think, Checker at the time. Okay. Um, Mike Webb. Crew chief for Abe Chica, and then um, became technical control, technical control and race director. So, so, that would so have been... came into Yamaha and stayed there, and and, and, and very rarely left. <laughs> apart, yeah. from, apart from two seasons that they don't like to talk about, where they went to Italy <laughs> for a couple of seasons, <laughs> which they like to gloss over on a regular basis. So, so just asking... hey, another interesting. No, go ahead. Case, I touched on Mike Webb then. Hmm. Um, uh, who's current race director and, like I said, technical control for MotoGP. Um, Mike was, when I was 15 and started, late 15, started road racing and in 16, didn't know what I was doing. Um, had my own bike, worked on it, but had no experience. I was a motocrosser, you know, didn't know tyre pressures or anything, what, what to focus on. Mike was fast then. He was a good 250 production rider. And he was the only guy that I could walk up to and say, um, what tire pressure should I put in or, or it's doing this, what would you change? You know? And he would tell me straight up the, the truth, you know, everyone else would either not tell you or um, tell you rubbish. Yeah. They you know? sent tell you. two or three PSI you, either way. When you're 15, 16, that was just really important. Then it kind of, I trusted him and he's been a trusted friend ever since. So um, he, he later offered me a job, to finish my apprenticeship because I'd been overseas for a while racing, came home, didn't have a job racing. So he said, come work in my bike shop, finish your apprenticeship. And then he helped me write letters to get the job in Malaysia, you know, cause I couldn't put a good letter together back then. And, um, and uh, so when he, when I left, he told me, Hmm, I want to go too, but I'm too old to race. I'll go as a engineer technician. So yeah, yeah that's how he got going. And then he ended up in one, with one of the, the most important, one of the most important jobs in MotoGP. Yeah, yeah, still there now. And still there now with, with part of the same panel that um, that works with Freddie Spencer works with and Franco and Jean. Is that part of the same panel of the safety guy or are they slightly different in the, the yeah, hierarchy? Slightly different. slightly different. So that used to be, you know, the Freddie Spencer job used to be Mike's. And Mike, like I kind of, Put across before a very nice fella, really honest. Where he hates having to be the headmaster and um, growling the children, you know, like for. And so um, 
as well as that, he's got so much other work, you know, like making the rule book, uh, you know, do all the changes to the rule book and, and does that all winter. And then um, the, all the race, direct, race direction um, pressure and stuff. Can you imagine having to then go, oh, we got to growl at this naughty boy, you know? And he's like, so they set up growling at the naughty boy uh, job for Freddie. You know, that, that was Freddie and his crew, you know, to watch, which takes a lot of time. You've got to really look at what they've done, look at the footage, and and then, uh, and that takes your time away from other things if you're a race director. So, And the way that Moto3 goes sometimes in qualifying, they're very, very busy. That would be a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> Next. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, Mike's an extremely nice fella, and I can imagine him not wanting to have to do that. But. I can understand that. I can understand that. Uh, so 1998 was was the, the year on the Red Bull Yamaha on the Dunlops against Mick Doohan and Max Biaggi, Carlos Checa, Norik Abe. Some serious names in there. So you're, you're sat on the grid and you're looking around. Did you ever kind of half pinch yourself or were you focused enough to go, I belong here. I, I've made it. This I deserve to be here. Or did you sometimes just have a sly look to the side and obviously Mick Dewan was a friend of yours, training partner. You guys knew each other so well. But did you think, sometimes just sit and think, this is cool? Um, I think it's a mixture of both. You know, like your results show you, I mean, no, I should say it the other way around. Yes, definitely. It's intimidating. You're like, wow, I'm with the best guys in the world now, you know, and you only have to look around your own garage and out the back, you know, there's two articulated trucks there and 15 staff and, and bikes that are worth crazy money. And um, they're just so beautiful. You, you know what I'm saying? Then the yeah, tire yeah. technicians, the computer guys, the, um, the uh, what else was it? Sorry, Olin's technicians. That there's so many people there, all for you. You feel the pressure, you know. And then at the same time, uh, yeah. Then there's the the legends you're up against. <laughs> they're heroes of your. I'll be honest, they were heroes of mine. Like guys, I, you know, wanted to be like, you know. And then, but at the same time, the, if your results, uh, you know, if you're some of those or half of those guys are behind you, then you can tell yourself. I belong here, you know. And, and no more so than Donington Park. Yeah, yeah. when all the guys are behind you. <laughs> Everybody was behind you. By, I by mean, that is nearly 12 yeah, seconds. pretty mind-blowing. It's a dream come true, for sure. That, that, for me, that weekend for you, everything aligned. The planets, the stars, everything aligned perfectly for you that weekend. Talk me through, the, the, the weekend fascinates me because it, it was, it'd be fair to say, it was, it was unexpected to do what you did for the, for the, the people outside, maybe not for you and for them. Uh, you were saying unexpected. And uh, to those that, watching from does, the bank side. Sorry? To those watching from the track side. Yeah. I mean, unexpected because Mick dominated always, you know, for years. Um, and yeah, unexpected that I ran away. Um, but I'd got, Pole position, uh, sorry, almost got pole position the week before. Um, finished third, but led halfway and got pole position here. Um, so from my side, it wasn't expected to at least fight for the win again. Um, but yeah, to run away was unexpected for me, you know, because 
that's exactly what I did is ran thinking that Mick will come because he always did, you know? Yeah. So I just kept running, running, trying to get as big a gap early on as I could. Um, not knowing where we were tie wise, whether it would drop. I expected that it would drop and he would come marching forward. Like he always did. So I ran for my life <laughs> and then, you know, when it got to, it wasn't until 12 seconds, I went 12 seconds with only single figure laps to go. I've got it. And then you start going, don't make a mistake. Oh, is the engine. <laughs> is that <laughs> well, it's that rattle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you what, as soon as you, uh, you try and roll off a little bit, you make mistakes because you don't have the same level of focus, you know? So I rolled off and went, oh, I don't feel as accurate. So I pushed on again. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's a fine line between um, running for your life, putting everything in, and uh, it's really hard to roll off and relax. It's super difficult to keep it all safe, put it that way. You don't want to be rolling around Donington thinking about your victory speech while you've still got three or four laps to go. Oh, no, no, I wasn't doing that. (laughs) You learn that early in your career. Never do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a recipe for disaster right there. Back in club racing days, you learn that. Someone will make you look silly while you're... you're During that season, different to MotoGP now where everybody has the same tyre, everybody's on on the Michelin and before they've had the Bridgestone, there was still the tyre war going on back then, wasn't there? Mm -hmm. The Hondas were on the Michelins, yourself on the Dunlops, suited different tracks at different times. Um, And during the research, I had a bit of a a watch back through some of the videos as well. And Mick was expecting the Yamaha and the Dunlops to be strong at Asin and at Donington Park as well, but not quite as strong at Donington as, as uh, you proved it to be. Yeah, um, you're right about Thai Wars. Like, um, I think it's better for the planet now because we used to go through, I'm not kidding, because I was the fastest Dunlop guy at the time, they'd have, I'm not kidding, I'd go through eight tyres in a one-hour session. Um three fronts, five rears in one hour. And that's to give you or give the tyre technicians an idea of what works. And then, oh, those that group works. So the next session we'll use those and put these in, which are closer to those. And, and when, it, when you're leading the, it's like development and find the way, you know, for a tyre manufacturer, that's what it's like. Literally, and you had to find out, you, you had to push from the first lap you know, because you had to save time, you know, you only got so much time to get those wheels in and out. And so you, the max we could do was eight in a session. Um, so that's basically five stops, you know, five changes. And um, to, yeah, like I said, it was like a war, like you say, which is a big carbon footprint now that I think about, it, I feel bad about, but uh, there's good and bad. I mean, tires don't develop as fast unless it's a wall like that, you know, um, because the manufacturer that has, if it's one make series, they're going to win anyway. You know? right. Try harder, you know, and, uh, and it's just human nature, isn't it? You know, you don't, or so there, there's swings and roundabouts, but yeah, it was there's and there's pros and cons, you know, sometimes, for example, when I was on the losing end was um, massively was, Michelin come out with a new range tire and it was amazing, you know, because 
and and I'm not saying Dunlop didn't do it. The last one, Dunlop had done it, you know. And Mitchell had come out with this new one that was Yanagawa and I, Suzuka, eight hour. And there's, we look at the weather forecast. We were fastest pairing, you know. We were looking really good. I think I qualified second to Kato. I didn't even know who he was. But then you look at the weather forecast, it's a typhoon. And we're completely snookered because the Michelin was averaged one second a lap faster in the rain. So Far superior. I know, yeah, another level, you know. So we did what the best we could, which was first Dunlop finisher in sixth. But it's, it's gutting when you knew you could have fought for the for the win, you know. We had the Yanagawa and I were on fire at the time and set in 97, really. We had a good bike, like I told you, you know, the Kawasaki at that year. So there's pros and cons, you know. And if you're on the good tyre, you're laughing, aren't you? Of course. You know? So there, there's always like this. The, the, the slicks weren't as big a difference as the rain tyres. You'd go one track and one would have the advantage, like you said, you go to another, the other would have advantage. You go to some, they were really close. Um, yeah. And... But the main thing for me was I came, my career went better when I got on that Kawasaki on Dunlops and I figured out, I changed me how to, to ride them because they had different strong points than the Michelin. Michelin had other strong points. And I didn't realize that till looking back, but you start developing to use those strong points. And, um, and uh, yeah, so when I got off the Dunlop back on the Michelin, they didn't have that. It was like, <laughs> I can't do what I used to do. You have to change you. And I couldn't, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's uh, tires are such an important thing. Like uh, some track day uh, instructors, ex racers and I sat around a table at a meal one time and uh, had this uh, conversation, I think in- interesting and said, if you put guys, you know, we are, if you put all of the latest thousands out in pit lane tomorrow, we were at a ref and then, uh, and you can choose, you know, as, and then all of the latest tire brands sitting there, but you only get to choose one thing. You don't get to choose the bike and you choose the tires or you get to choose the bike and you don't choose the tires. What are you going to go for? Fascinating. Everyone, everyone went tires. Yeah. Because when I say everyone, know. I'd say eight out of ten guys went tires because there's such a big lap time difference in tires, and the bikes are all good now. They're all good, you know. There's not a lot between the thousands these days, is there? But the, yeah. there's, there's still differences between the tires for different riding styles and feel. Feel is such still, a, a, still a, a massive in tires, you know. So, yeah. Um, so. It's, it's, it's a subject all on its own, I think. That a lot yeah. of um, the guys watching trackside don't realise, especially in these days of one make series, British superbikes are on Pirelli's, World Superbikes are on Pirelli's, MotoGP are on Michelin. There isn't that difference for the riders who swap teams to then have to get used to the tyres. The, the only place really where the tyres differentiate is uh, the, the roads. The TT, for example, some run Dunlops, Metzlers, whichever. Yep. Um, that's down to personal preference. That option has been taken away these days yes. for the riders yeah. this is what you are running okay just deal like with throw it. in there i think that's why uh well part of the reason i went well in my first season on the 500 because um and i knew it coming into it that i'd been on olin's and dunlop 
for the last two years and it was going really well. And I'm going to jump on this 500 and have Olins and Dunlop. And that gave me confidence and it worked. You know, when I did get on the bike, I went because I knew the feel and I knew how the suspension guys worked and what. And it, yeah, I, I think there's a big part of it. It was that, you know. It's that continuity, the tyres and the, the suspension components mm-hmm. are so vital to the feel of a motorcycle for the feedback for the rider. Yep. Anytime you change that, I know that they say Olin's is gold for a reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because they're one of, they are the leading manufacturer for suspension parts. You but know the, the pronunciation of Olin's is Erlins? Erlins, because of the like double... Double dot above, yeah. Double yeah. dot, Erlins. Like, Ern Chu, you know the the rider from Chan Ern Chu. Yeah, uh, ah. it's the same. Do you know what? It's it's yeah. an education with you, Simon. Yeah. Well, no, no, I, I just was always surprised. You know, it's my job now to know the pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to that. <laughs> Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll come on to that shortly. Um, just a brief touch for the guys that listen, especially in in the UK. Two thousand and two with Rob Mack and the two thousand two. Yep. As he checks, he, yeah, that's right. as, as, as he checks his oh, notes. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> 2002 with Rob Mack and the Virgin Yamaha team. Who was your, Steve Plater, was he your yes. teammate that year? Yep. yep. How did that move come about? Because you'd done the GPs, you'd done World Superbikes, and then to come over to the UK to what was one of the biggest branded teams at the time, Rob Mack put together a hell of a team with the Virgin sponsorship to then come to... Cadwell Park and Alton Park and places like that. I know you'd raced briefly with the 250s, but coming over here to do that seems an unusual move at that time. Um, I can explain that easily. Um, I'm not saying it was the right move, but I can explain the reason easy. Is um, in I'd stopped, I'd retired at two, two, end of 2000 or sometime 2000. Then um, 2001, I'd um, gone down the route that I thought that I wanted to do, which was uh, Olin's, Erlen's technician. And uh, it was great. This, they're as good a bunch of guys as I thought they were working, you know, from the outside, working with them on a rider. It was a cool year in that I learned a lot about the product. You went to Olin's and in Sweden and did the training, you know, they prepped me for going world championship, you know, which was a lot to take, take in. And uh, I had the bike mechanic background. I could already do a fork seal on my motocross bikes and road bikes, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, there was a lot more to it. I, it, what I'm saying is I had the mechanical background to be able to take it on, but at world championship level, I had a lot to learn on um, from the other technicians, which was great. You know, um, uh, Andy Dawson, I've got to give a yell out to him because he was magic, you know, because he's, uh, he's an English guy. So experienced at Erlen's um, and he gave me a lot of uh, the info I needed in the truck, you know, making decisions, but um, it was easy in that I could go from one. I used to be the rider in that huddle, you know, when you're in the garage, uh, crew chief, rider, suspension technician, uh, maybe team manager, but definitely computer guy, you know, all in the huddle. I just moved sideways, you know, so I felt <laughs> at home. I knew what was going on. I understood riders' point of view, how they put things, though riders put things very differently. But it was still 
uh, I didn't feel intimidated, felt at home. And then um, new baby came along, my, my son, who's 19 now. Um, he, you know, my wife couldn't travel with me anymore. You know, the budget for as a suspension technician doesn't cover that. And um, she's in Andorra without family support and stuff. And I, uh, I just knew that it wasn't the right thing to keep going away, you know, and uh, because you're a lot of time away as a yeah. technician in the paddock, even more than a rider. Because you, so anyway, um, I thought, what am I going to do? I had, I remember being in Malaysia, second to last round, I think it was, thinking if I sign this piece of paper, it's not good for my family, my marriage, you know. And then Neil McKenzie walks in and goes, Rob's looking for a rider. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I've still got my motor home. I could, I could go and do that. And I genuinely did it as like, I could keep the little family together and go back to British Championship. But you've got to be super hungry, you know, super hungry. To, the British Championship is like World Championship at their tracks, you know. They, the boys ride hard. And uh, the tracks are scary, some of them are very scary. And uh, I wasn't really up for that. Um, I think there was two. The reason that year didn't go wonderful, I think I got two podiums in a whole season. And one of them was wet, I think. And the other was uh, I wouldn't have got it if Michael Rutter's Duke hadn't have gone pop um <laughs> all i'm saying is i was uh, it wasn't a i don't think the right maybe stage of life or uh, hunger i didn't yeah. have that hunger of before you know but also um i think there's a little bit of uh rob can take a little bit of um of the blame uh, rob didn't do everything he said he would do um so there was a little bit of uh a bit of both, put it that way. And so that that wasn't good for Rob's and my relationship, you know. A bit of friction. Um, Plato was great. We yeah, good teammate. And he was he was in the hungry stage of his, you know, he was like, I want to get there, you know. So yeah, but uh I, I shouldn't have done it. But you live and learn, you know. It was an experience and it, it yep. brought in a, made another set of fans. Friends. Made some friends for life that year. So can uh, put it down to some positive stuff. And how important is that, especially yep. in this day and age at the moment with how things are. So then after that, that's when the time came to do the track day instruction, all your um, experience and knowledge to be imparted onto your everyday Joe in the street, like myself, and building then up towards Moto Voodoo, the dark art of performance. How, how did that develop? Because that's become such a, a massive part of, of track day riding and especially on the continent with the schools that you do. Obviously, we have, I hear a lot about it from Len Padilla and from Andy Corse, who are mutual friends of ours. And th- th- they can't speak highly enough about what you do and how you do what you do. I, um, I, I how do I put it? Um, I was coming back from an injury when we decided to do that. I'd hit a car on a enduro bike and um, I was like, you know, I was paralyzed at the time. It was temporarily lucky, lucky enough. Um, broke T12 and had to have a bunch of screws and stuff in there and had a long recovery period, about 11 months to get uh, good enough to go to work, kind of hobble along, you know. And, um, and uh, it was a long time to think about what I wanted to do. I was, happy with my race career period of my life and I wasn't really happy with the years after 
you know, because I was less, I didn't have the direction, you know, real solid, even that year with Rob, I wasn't focused on what I wanted to get out of it. Does that make sense? You know, fulfillment. yeah, well, a real goal, clear goal. I didn't have, you know, and then I had time enough to think about it lying in, uh, lying on my back and uh, waiting for my legs to, you know, come good enough. And uh, I thought, this is what I know, you know, is all the stuff I've learned from 15 years of age through to, you know, 30s is about bike racing. Everything that makes, and I had to learn most of it the hard way, you know, by making mistakes and crashing or, and so I thought what, there isn't something I'd already started. Uh, Steve Plater had uh, given me a call and said, do you want to come and do teaching at track days? That's what I'm, I'm doing. And do you want to have a go with short one guy? And I, I went, okay. And I found that I could do it. I had a way of putting it across, you know, that people understood. So then I had this accident and I thought, this is what I should do. I know there isn't a book that explains it in a modern way that works, you know? So I started notes, you know, in, in my hospital bed, writing notes about what, how I put it together, and it grew, you know, and uh, just took off and thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly, meaning if we're going to do a book, we'll do, I'll do it really well, but then we got people like videos now, let's make it into a video, and it worked, it took off, you know, so, and I genuinely tried to put it across uh, without BS, without trying to, you know, because there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there that trying to, um, I know I'm getting off track, but I love the Albert Einstein saying, if you can't explain the subject simply, you don't know it well enough, you know, we don't know the subject well enough. So I like that philosophy, make it really simple so people can follow it. And it's honest, it's not, you're not trying to make it into, um, you know what I mean? Something it isn't. Um, so that's what the book is like, and, and it went really well. Then the, the school, which we're doing uh, alongside that, over that the next ten years went until we were full, and and um, yeah, really proud of it. <laughs> it worked, you know. It's it, I think it comes down to really wanting something again, you know, like wanting to make something work. You, if you have the passion for something, it becomes really easy to do. And I want to, on a smaller level, this podcast, I absolutely adore doing it. And it's so easy to do and to get to speak to guys like yourself. And I, I absolutely adore it. I'm just an average guy in the street. You know, I have a, a shift work job and the, the passion that I have for racing is, is beyond what I do for a, a normal job, which is why I enjoy sitting and doing this. And so once you find that, um, that passion in life, and as you have with with the teaching and with the with the race school, is and it's gone on. You're away again this week. I know you're away on uh, late tomorrow, and it just carries on and carries on and carries on. So as long as you can wind that throttle back, and on the new bikes as well, I remember seeing earlier. You you've changed manufacturer. Yeah, you were Suzuki for a long now. time. Yeah, ten years with Suzuki. It was great. Can't say anything wrong. Like it was just time for a change, you know, and um, um the clients I have, because I've taken on the MotoGP job, um, this is the fourth year, that cut the summers out. So it's only winters. Um, then we, we've we got less events. Um, it started to become a bit more exclusive. How's it work? Or, you know what I mean? More, 
I'm doing less days. Therefore, we try and choose the right days. Like um, people are traveling. We're traveling from fur, for, not right now because of COVID, but from further. We have guys coming from Canada and Hong Kong, Aussie. Um, like, wow, US you guys from New York coming, as well as the usual from Scandinavia and Germany, Switzerland, um, UK. That's a ridiculous notion. These guys have nice bikes. You know, they want to travel for something special, you know? Yeah. And I thought the Aprilia fits that. And I approached Aprilia and said, what do you think, you know? And um, they want my clients on these bikes. So it, we worked something out and, uh, um, yeah, we put it together. And so I've got one instructor bike and two in, um, fly and ride bikes, we call them. So fly in and we've got mechanic looks like, you know, factory rider. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So we got, yeah, RSB4 factories and uh, one, um, uh, the non-factory, which is actually the same bike, but different suspension, you know, not okay. the electronic suspension. Yeah. But yeah, that's um, taking a hit right now because people can't travel. You know, and that's uh, hard. Yeah, it's a real shame because I, I, it had been so solid for so long, like 10 years, that I thought the MotoGP one would be the less reliable. <laughs> you know, they might tell me to go away. And um, it's actually the MotoGP one that's been solid, and the no one can travel for the not no one, but much less people can travel yeah. for certainly the, the fewer people thing. are traveling around which yeah, but that is going to change on the other side everyone's dying to get riding because they're absolutely stuck so you're going to be busier than ever and being you'll be taking on, on you'll side. be taking on steve plater this time rather than him asking you to come along <laughs> the boy can yeah, still cool. ride there's no doubt so that, yeah still enjoying it you know enjoying the the banter uh in the garage and we have meals out together you know know the local restaurants and stuff so it's not just about riding the bike that's the main thing but try and make it the full package but the full package is it's an inclusive thing isn't it it's it's not just turn up at the track and ride and then back to the hotel it's an inclusive time with everybody and gelling together which in turn makes them quicker and more relaxed and value for money which is so important yeah it's um it's definitely about the meals out together in the evening as well and talking about what we did in the day and and then focus on the next one. But yeah, and then, uh, the motor, like I said, the MotoGP job came out of the blue. So, and uh, I'm starting neatly, to really... neatly segues us to that, that stage of your career now from 2018. How did that come about? Um, how did it come about? I did a... We, I was at Silverstone for a, uh, to promote MotoVoodoo. It is because they had stands that you could hire to promote your products. You know, we thought, why not? You know, they were at the... Um, yeah, it was worth a, worth a go, you know, to pr- promote our product. So um, while I was there, the Dorna guys, who I now work with, um, said we're doing a historic series of historic videos. Um, the one I did was uh, winning Donington, but also that qualifying the weekend before at Assen with Mick, you know, the how Mick did an amazing one-off lap to take pole off me. Um, so they did an interview with Mick, an interview with me, and splice it together, you know. You might have seen it. Anyway, um, apparently I did that interview, and they went, like, in one go, one take, and my bosses and workmates went, he's not bad at that. And my boss put, call him my boss, but he feels more like a a workmate, you know. He's, yeah. he's a good fella. Anyway, he put my name on a list in case, um, you know, he's, he said he's got a piece of, a sheet in his computer 
if he's got a job coming up, he looks through that, that he's written down names earlier. And um, Dylan Gray, um, congratulations to him, but got married, went to live in Canada, and uh, this job came up. So he looked down the list, and uh, there's probably others that said no. <laughs> no. But he said <laughs> he was looking for a GP winner that could become a reporter. And he said, well, okay, well, that, that talent it. pool's quite shallow. There's not many people that yes. can do that. Yeah. So, because he said, we've already got two journalists in the box talking. It'd be rather than have another journalist, let's have a, a, a guy who's done it to learn how to be a journalist, you know? And because uh, you can't turn the, teach the journalist the writing side, but you can no. hopefully teach the writer how to be a journalist. And how <laughs> steep with an that easy, learning curve? Sorry? How steep was that learning curve? Oh, huge, like uh, much bigger than you think looking from the outside. You know, I went in there thinking, I just got to talk about motorbikes again. <laughs> I, already, I know it, but uh, it's a totally different trade. And it takes two years. Everything else I've done takes a couple of years to learn it, learn a trade, just the basics, you know, well. Um, whether it was being a mechanic, it was two years before I had made all the mistakes and learned from them. And then you can start becoming a good mechanic, you know? Um, and it was the, you know, the same as a writer, same as this job, you know, um, the pit lane thing was exactly the same. It was two years before I had the base, like I said, made all mistakes and then tried to improve and, you know, worked on yourself and, and uh, learn yeah, like I said, learn the trade. And uh, my workmates were good, tried to help. Uh, maybe not the beginning, um, because I think it's not really a school for it, you know, and there's, there, there wasn't anyway. Um, but once I got to know people, I could start, and who to ask, I could start asking, what, how do you think, you know, what's your advice? And, uh, yeah, now coming into fourth year, I think first year, it's horrible. Like you just making mistakes because you don't know what you're doing. You know, you don't know the important points. You haven't done it before. You, you know what I'm saying? And then um, you make mistakes, get hammered for it, especially on social media, and then get more nervous, which so it's hard to rise above, you know, when you're already nervous. And that was, was a proper nightmare. But um, I went and got a few lessons you know one paid for one um learned off learned from workmates asked questions um then just genuinely took social media off my phone in this period and then focused on trying to improve it you know get yeah. better because i knew the like i said well, you like you know i've done it i know but it's not the same as putting it across you know um so that second year started to come better you know towards the end of the second year okay now i'm making some progress and third year i started to really enjoy you know and i think part of it is being able to relax because you know you're not shit anymore <laughs> you start relaxing and playing with you know being able to use your own personality instead of just going trying to do everything um and yeah now end of third year started really uh your mind opening up started seeing more things to do and enjoying it you know it must be really difficult, especially in, in that first season, because you can't practice. 
there's there's not a, apart from standing in front of the mirror when you've got the live feed in your ears and you've got um steve and and bertie on on the uh, on the world feed coming down to you or um matt and neil when they're on that when they're on the comms as well you 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 can't practice that you can't go to the garage and, and react to things you can't preempt what's going to happen it's all on the hoof so to do that in front of a live global audience the the magnitude of it was lost on a lot of people it's proper jumping in the deep end you know when i I look back i I think it's mean (laughs) (laughs) mean. throwing someone who doesn't know what he's doing into that level it's like it's mean like but um i'm so glad i survived and got through it you know and now can start enjoying and doing it you know what's been the highlight for you while you've been doing that oh highlight okay um there's a few um early on it was how cool rossi was you know he did a couple of things that you know rossi's so good at doesn't he making you feel special he's, he's amazing remembering your name go he came up to me you know my first race He'd just been to the podium, Qatar 2018. He's walking down. I'm walk- I've just given all my kit back walking upstairs. He's coming down from podium or whatever. And he stops in the staircase, puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, Simon, good to see you back in the paddock where you belong. I mean, geez, make you feel good, you know. <laughs> you're a tall guy, but that must have made you feel another foot and a half taller. Oh, he's just, just when you're stressed and bummed out and you know you're not good at your job, that was super cool, you know, to to get at that stage, you know. Um, but I think about the work itself, the most enjoyable, I didn't know this either, I didn't expect it, is doing the live stuff, like you said, um, especially live to camera, which I don't get to do as much, because live to camera, there's just no hiding, you know. It's such a rush. It's so much pressure. You have to really use your brain, especially when someone's yelling you in your ear, are going, this is coming, or they've forgotten to turn their mic off, so they're just, there's noise going in your headset. When you're trying to put a sentence together and then there's noise from bikes and you pull it off, you know, you cover up those mistakes, it, it's a proper rush. It's like you've done something really dangerous, <laughs> <laughs> almost crashed, but it worked and, you, and you're laughing like you are right now at the end of it going, that was brilliant. That was so much fun. I think, you know, after doing a couple like that it's and pulling it off, it's like um, I, I, at the beginning I went, why is it so difficult? Why is there so many, you know, there there might be someone talking to you, yeah, it's the, there's a mistake, there's um, the noise, can't, you've got, you know, there's a massive noise so you can't hear the question. When you survived that, and I've done it a few times, I realized that this is part of the job, is making it look like there isn't any problems when there is. And, uh, yeah, so like I said, I think probably the biggest rush is pulling off a live thing that you don't really know how it's going to go or what they're going to ask you, and it works, you know. Metaphorically saving it on your elbow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it's the danger, the danger uh, aspect, you know, it's a rush. Anyone that's done it, I know they'll know what I'm talking about. Do you, I mean, you, the previous uh, guys in the job, Ian Wheeler was in that job for a while as pit lane roving reporter, then Dylan Gray and now yourself. You've, you've very much made it your own. And especially, I remember it at the time, 
and I know we'd spoken before at the time, it, it's hard to read the comments on social media. I know Matt Dunn and Neil Morrison had quite a, a bit of stick when they first started doing Moto2, Moto3, and they've grown into the role fantastically well. Um, Two great guys. They're all absolutely. amazing guys. Yeah. I've got Matt. Matt's one of the guests um, uh, next week for the show. I've got Matt coming on to discuss about right. MotoGP social media and things like that for the younger guys to, to give them a bit of uh, food for thought. Um, but to, to, to operate while he's, and he said you came off the social media at the time, that, that must've been a harder point to do to actually read what people think about you, whether their opinion is relevant or not. Is that yeah, kind of pretty cruel on there? Yeah. It, I would say it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to endure, you know, and I've had some horrific injuries and, you know, it was just terrible. Like, because I'd never experienced it where, um, I suppose, being shitted something, like I said at the beginning, um, and people are so unforgiving, you know, I mean, fair enough, they're paying for the live feed. They want the, you know, the commentators to be polished and I wasn't you know I was learning um but yeah they're they're brutal and it made me I know I've said it before I don't know if I said it to you but it made me realize how um these you know I'm a confident guy with a lovely family and my own house and uh, I've been successful at something before and I was it was enough to make me cry you know and it made me realize what kids must go through when they're getting uh, you know, bullied on bullied, the internet yeah. or, or like pff, it really did make me understand, you know? Um, so that's why I got rid of it for a while until I was confident enough in my job that I thought, okay, I'll put it back on. And because th- if they're saying nasty things, you know, there's nothing I could do about it. And I know I'm doing all right now. So yeah. you know, too bad. I'm not going to listen. But when you know, you're not going to doing all right. You're getting hurt, it's, so it's kicking yeah. you while you're down, isn't it? Well, you're trying yeah, to yeah, balance yeah. everything else. And you've got the yeah. people you've never spoken to and never heard of yeah. casting aspersions but, um, on your profession. But there's a lot of nice people out there as well saying nice things. So, and especially in the last um, year, um, I'm, I'm talking accounts I've blocked because they said such terrible things like, you know, unacceptable really doesn't matter how rubbish I was. Um, um, but you know how you can kind of see that, you know, someone you've blocked said something and they're saying something nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's come around and oh, thank God. Um, when, yeah, it was a big learning curve. Part, you're in integral part of the crew now. And we know that the, the post-race interviews and the, the pit lane reporting and, and have visions of you scurrying up and down pit lane, trying to get to the right garage and talk to the right people. That must be quite a difficult job to get people to come out of the garage as well in the middle of it to try and talk to maybe Lucio or somebody like Lucio Cecinello or Hervé, trying to get the right people at the right time. There must be an art to that. It's really hard, really hard, especially when at the beginning they don't really know what you're doing, you know. And and again, three years in, they do know what I'm doing and they realise who they're going to be listened by. So it becomes easier, you know, or harder if they don't want to talk, you know, but um, yeah, uh, um, you start building a relationship with, like with people. Um, if they enjoyed chatting with you last time, when you go to rest them, even if they didn't really want to talk, they go, oh, okay. You know, you know what I'm saying? So you start getting more 
Um, but yeah, so when it starts going better, everything starts going better. So people want to talk to you. But yeah, you're right. It's really difficult. And you feel like a right pain in the backside because you're nonstop hassling people, you know? Yeah. Can I talk to you? Can I? Which is not really my nature, you know, to do it. No, it's, hey, that must um, be quite difficult when you're not that kind of, of person. I'm very much the same. I, I, I would make the world's worst salesman because somebody says now and go, okay, no yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah. But then to be persistent yeah. and persevere when it's not yeah. quite your nature. Um, you know what? It, what has become made that point easier. Um, and I'll even fight, meaning not physically, but. No argue to get what I want for it is um, I, I haven't put this into words before, but I know how I feel is um, the show is bigger than me and you. And uh, so I'm just fighting to make that show better. You know what I mean? It's not, the show's not about me or you. It, we're just adding little bits in and, and we're just trying to make it as good as possible. And at the end of that, live period if that's the goal is making that as good as we can you know and i don't mind getting into an argument or being pushy or a pain in the ass to make that show better you know that's all it is because it's i don't know how to put it it's not it, i think it helps if you make it it's not about me you know it's about the show does that make sense yeah the show yeah. is only as good as the as the sum of its parts yeah and so um I'll be not my personality really meaning be a pain in the ass and argue with someone and the some of the for example um the uh PR people you know the press person for a team um might stonewall you you know but you know they don't understand what I need yeah. and it's good for them and I won't back down you know I'll, and if they keep doing it I'll complain about them to, you know, let it give us more. And it's not because I want to go there. It's about their damaging our show, you know, by not letting me speak to that writer. Like, I hope that explains. Anyway, enough about that. No, it makes, makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And it's, I'm looking forward to the season coming. Hopefully it will be slightly different and not quite as intense as, as last season, which remains to be seen. I mean, talk about being away from home for for so long and how quickly the, 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 the rounds came around. Fortunately, they were on mainland Europe. So for traveling wise for you, not too bad, I would suggest. It, it was even as intense as it was. I'm hoping that, that this coming season, whenever it, deems to start that we can uh, have a full season we can have fans in which obviously which make the whole thing even more especially for you for the riders I mean I can't imagine I can't imagine anyway because I've never done it but coming on an inlap with no fans after (laughs) one of the biggest battles of the day and nobody to I don't know whether it feels kind of deflating for them have you noticed a slight difference and the fight is still the fight but without the adulation of the crowd it must be slightly different Oh, it's it's just not the same atmosphere, you know, without the people there. There's, you know, to hear that when an overtakes and and you're right, the riders don't normally notice the crowd. Um, yeah, a little bit on the, the start grid and all that, but once they're riding, it's all about you know their result. They they want to be better than the other guy. Right? Um, but you're right, warm down lap. It's just not the same, you know. You can't. It's 
everyone will understand. It's, it's so important to have the crowds back. But um, it's made my job a lot easier in the paddock because um, um, there were, I think, in my opinion, I hope my boss is watching, there was too many people in the paddock, you know, yeah. and um, to make it uh, possible to do our jobs, you know. I'm talking not just me, everyone. Mechanic has only got so much time to get to the bathroom and back uh, because he's me too. Uh, and when the paddock's rammed with guests and the toilet's got a queue out the door, it's a problem and you can't walk where you need to walk is like, you know, because there's like ways you can walk around trucks and, yeah. and you can't get there. You got to go. So that has been a lot better, but I seriously miss the, the crowd and the grandstands. They have to come back. You know, it's not the same without them. <laughs> travel wise, bit... you mentioned travel. Sorry. Yeah. You, no, no, carry on. I, um, ne- I don't mind that at all. Um, I, how do I put it? Um, I remember, you know, when I get a bunch of races in a row, I remember a couple of years ago, we got, it must've been to 20, no, 19. We got to Malaysia and we'd done Japan, Australia. And then we're in Malaysia and we're just about to start Malaysia. And my workmates were going, Oh, God, this is too long away from home. I can't wait to get back. And and I was like, guys, if, (laughs) If our boss rang us right now and go, we've got to do the lap again, I'd go, okay. <laughs> I, I think it's the a stage of life where, you know, when my kids were little and, you know, you really feel like you should be and you need to be at home and you miss them. You miss them changing and growing up. It's totally different, you know, and that was in my 30s to being in my 50s now. And um, they're all right. They're right. They're doing their, they've got their own life and we talk yeah. on WhatsApp and and um and uh my wife and my relationship is as is, is as solid as ever. Um it's a good stage as well, you know. And um I don't mind being at work. I, I like my job and if it needs to I'll I'll do whatever needs to be done, put it that way, and it doesn't really worry me. Like and I look forward to get home when I get home. So that part is really good because it was one of the parts I was worrying about saying yes again because the last time traveling was the reason I stopped being in the paddock as a suspension technician but different times of life bring different outlooks if you your um, lead commentator Steve Day with his young boy Charlie exactly that reason it was you know it's only a toddler and then the season goes into full swing and you can completely understand that they want to be they're missing out on valuable time as so many guys in the paddock have done over the years yeah. with yes with mechanics health. as well it's emotionally really hard to handle being away for a long period when they're little you know they change so quickly they really do two questions to finish off i'm conscious of, yep. of the time that, that we've got uh, two questions that i ask um every guest we have on first question what was your favourite corner? Everybody has a favourite track, but what was your favourite corner on and on which bike that gave you the most satisfaction and the biggest grin? Oh, um, as soon as you say that, um, I mean, there's a few. Suzuka had a had one or two. Suzuka in Japan circuit, but Phillip Island's got at least two. Um, it's the fast ones. Yeah. Because uh, it takes a lot of time, you know. When you first go through them, they're terrifying. You know, you, you're like, 
um, the slow ones are easy to get to the limit. The fast ones are much harder. And like, for example, Stoner Corner, or to me, um, that section, the last two turns at Phillip Island, um, like truly amazing. Um, because it probably t- it took me years of going there to get them right, you know. Um, and when you, you're getting them right, and it's like uh, you dreamt, you know. We were all bike riders dream of sliding through a corner, you know, and normally we're not, you know. <laughs> but when you really are, and it's at 200 kilometres an hour plus, and you know if you make the mistake, it's going to wreck the bike and maybe you. Uh, but all of, you know, the danger again, when you put it all together and it goes right, there's nothing like it. Like, to me, it's those fast turns. This is why I asked the question because the, the the fascination for the a lot of people go for Phillip Island. I, I spoke to James Toesland last week. He never enjoyed Turn Three. He never enjoyed Stoner, but he really enjoyed the last couple of turns onto the, yeah, the Gardner Strait. Yep. But he he didn't like Turn Three because the front was hopping too. It was too much of a balance for his riding style. Yet yeah, we speak to other guys, and Turn Three is the best corner they can ever go around because it's off camber, then it flattens, and it, it, everything's going on. And it, I just Dangerous. find it fascinating to 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 know why and how. Um, and then my final question: Sometimes th- this this bottoms out a little bit. Higher car stories. What's your best higher car story? Oh, um, I'll be honest. I don't really like this one, and people, a lot of people, don't understand. But I. I I don't agree with wrecking high cars. <laughs> I don't agree with wrecking other people's property. I know. I, uh, but I these are the kind of stories we're looking for. Up. This is what Sorry? we're looking for. These are the kind of stories we're looking for, though. <laughs> I mean, I did, did it by accident, but my best one. Um, and my, my wife was in the car. <laughs> my wife was in the car. I, I wasn't trying to wreck it. I was trying to do good slides, you know, <laughs> like we were just talking about. And... Uh, the, my teammate was great at it. Maybe I was trying to beat him. Um, Regis Laconi, a, a wild man, like the craziest, scariest driver I've ever been with. Um, but because he pushes the limit all the time, he gets quite good at it. Um, and it's surprising because at the time his brother had been killed in a car accident, you know, and he still drove like that. I was like, I'm talking, um, you know, the especially the Falcon Ford Falcon rental cars and Aussie, the you know four point two straight six, so plenty of torque and uh, auto. But he just pull it in one gear and uh, with a boot full of luggage and all of us in it and do these massive drifts at, at speed, you know. And I was like, oh god! And this other car, other people around, and uh, I, I he was so bad that I refused to give him the. You know, we were at test and we had to share a rental car to and from the hotel, and we normally had our girls with us. I would get the the key and not give it to him, you know, because uh, he he scared me, you know, like I didn't want to hurt someone else on the road or me or anyway. So one day they took the key from uh, me, the team did, to go and get some water in Malaysia. All the water had gone. It's really hot. The guy came back and just Regis was there. I wasn't. I was probably out on the bike because I mean he threw Regis the key because he knew we travelled together. I'm like, so I can't take the key off him. Yeah, now he's got it. So we used to train together. He knew I was stronger than him. I put it 
in second. I gave him second gear only. He's not having any other, you know? So that, that's how wild he was. And he'd still managed, just on the limit, I managed to get it. So anyway, I went to New Zealand, got a rental car, and it had turned out to be one of these Falcons. I thought, oh, I better give it a go. Register's pretty good at it. So we got some good good slides going on turns, you know, just country roads or turnoffs or whatever. And uh, just down the road from my mum and dad's, I came around the turn and uh, whack, got it full. But I could see the next straight piece of road was free, was, but it wasn't. There was a school teacher. Uh, coming, a male guy, school teacher, older than me, coming the other way in his four, must have been four in the afternoon or something, finished school. And so I'm sideways, but the boot is hanging over on his side of the road. He's, I'm sideways going, oh dear, oh dear. He, Looking him I'm, in the I'm, eye. I'm going, oh dear, because he hasn't seen. It's like he's doing his drive home on autopilot. He hasn't seen my boot on his side of the road until the very last moment, you know, and he went like this and, but the boots still got him and <laughs> flicked him and flicked him sideways and backwards into a drain. So I'm talking a big like stormwater drain. So there's only the front of his car <laughs> poking out, you know, the, it's wiped almost the boot off the Falcon. It's completely, excuse me, to one side, you know, just the boot, luckily, because I had passengers and yeah, and he was lovely about it. The school teacher, I was apologising, you know, helping him out of his car because the door was kind of like opening that way <laughs> to get up, up the bank. He knew my mum. And I'm going, oh. Anyway. Well, yeah. How typically Kiwi? How typically What's Kiwi? that? Sorry. How typically Kiwi and end to that story? Oh, he was, he was completely cool with it. He was all Nice fine and relaxed and, and no, yeah, no drama. Nice. He was saying, sorry, I didn't see you until the last moment. <laughs> but it was, a, yeah. Yeah, so sorry to be boring. I'm not, um, I don't like wrecking other people's things. No, that's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that story at all. Um, Simon Crafer, thank you so much for joining us on Off Track. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a long time since we caught up. Just one thing that did make me smile while you were on about the crowds at MotoGP. The the last time that, that we met, I literally accosted you coming out of the toilet at Silverstone at two seasons ago literally managed to catch you just before you're going back onto onto pit lane i don't oh, it's all a blur yeah you won't remember i'd have been focused on what I exactly had to do. you <laughs> were so busy at the time i introduced you to my girlfriend jennifer and then you're like i'm really sorry dave i've got I to go that. she must and be pretty <laughs> he's a pretty girl i'm a very lucky man <laughs> she's really, she's really the same height as you <laughs> but no, it's been an absolute pretty very best of luck for the season to come hopefully we can have crowds in it can get a little bit more back to normal um Another phenomenal season in the offing, I'm sure. It would be hard to top the season that's just gone and in a lot of ways. Um, but see you back in pit lane. We'll have a listen. Hopefully at the end of the season, you'd be gracious enough to come back on the show and talk us through the year. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, the racing's been great. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Simon Crayfarth, thank you very much. This has been an Off-Track Podcast production in association with Graft Ventures.